Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly note that this episode contains some adult themes. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Padil and I'm delighted to be joined by an author who wrote her first book aged 13 and by 18 she was writing for The Times. She has won countless journalism awards and has had best-selling books including How to Be a Woman, How to Build a Girl and Marana Festo. It is, of course, Catelyn Moran who's here to talk about her new book, How to Be Famous. Welcome, Catelyn. I have counted the awards. It's 27. Is it 27? I, just to, I thought I'd get that fact That's in there. That's yeah. a lot of awards. Yeah. Best, um, for everything I've done. You know, best sitcom, best book, best columnist, incredible. best interviewer. Amazing. Yeah. All I right. Supreme. And, Catelyn, you've brought along a number of objects, your awards probably, <laughs> that have influenced and inspired your writing. Now, first of all, though, give us a brief synopsis of How to Be Famous. It's the second book in what, is it going to be a it's trilogy? Going to be is a it going to be a trilogy? Yes. About Joanne? Anna Morrigan stroke Dolly Wilde. Yes. So the idea is that we follow a girl from the age of 14 in the first book and then we're going to follow her all the way through her life through these three books and then by the end of this trilogy she will be ruling the country. This right. is the vainglorious ambition that I have for this because I wanted to write a story about someone working class taking the reins of power right. through a series of amusing books that would allow other working class kids to read it and go, oh God, I could do that. She's had this ridiculous life. She's not the right person. She hasn't gone to the right place. She hasn't been to the right school. She doesn't know the right people but she has some good ideas and she wants to change the world. Okay. So that's the idea. But this middle book is the is the sexual shame book in the right. trilogy. It deals with sexual shame and it also deals with good and positive sex as well. Because mm. I looked around, I've got teenage girls, and all the most famous sex that's around at the moment is either online pornography, mm. which I do not think I see much fun happening there for the ladies, or it's Fifty Shades of Grey, in mm. which I do not see much fun happening for the ladies. No. So I wanted to write some all the good men, shags. Actually, no. Just to bring you back from the sex for a minute, I'm definitely going to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. What I think is available for some people reading these books is the possibility that they have an element, even though you're very keen to say that's not the case, mm-hmm. at the start of the book in a, a sort of forward of Romana Clef, as I believe it's said, yes. that they have an element of being a bit about your life or a bit autobiographical. And certainly they are about a young working class woman from Wolverhampton who lives in a sort of benefit-led, yes. the word family, yes. benefit-driven family, <laughs> uh, and goes on to be a music journalist and then famous for writing and whatever. So you see there's some similarity there. I'm not getting where you're coming from here. What, where's, where's this going? No. Well, I'm interested in when you're going to become Prime Minister in, in your scenario. Cause... Well, this is why I've had to write the third book because I don't want to actually go into politics myself. I want the third book to inspire other people who are awesome to do it because I'm just not very good on paperwork. Right. At this point, I become the puppet master and I sit behind them going, yes, I kind of invented you and it was my idea for you to rule the world. Here's some ideas I'd like you to go forth and do the paperwork on while I sit here and continue looking after my dog and smoking cigarettes. Fair enough. One thing I thought about with these books... I've been watching Patrick Melrose. I did think, I wonder how similar in a way these books are, you know, and how what that means in literary terms. Because, you know, really, Edwin Sutherland's books are Romanoclefs about his early life yes. and trouble he had and damage he suffered transformed into, you know, really good books. Mm-hmm. But what I'm basically going to say is I think your books are probably as good and certainly they're different funnier bloody that, hell fun, no, can well, I have so, that quote well no they're you? certainly funnier yes. without any doubt I mean his books are quite funny but in a kind of thin upper class way your mm-hmm. books are much actually funnier Thank you. he sort of gets away with it is what I'm saying because they're sort of posh mm-hmm. and literary with a capital L he gets away with the fact that they're really sort of autobiographical fictionalised whereas I'm not saying you don't get away with it, but I do think it's something that gets put to you a lot, that this is basically just your life. Well, one of the things that gets said over and over again, like the first book had to be a woman, half of that is about my sort of like my teenagers as a fat working class sex mad teenage girl, then how to build a girl, blah, 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 and then this one now, how to be famous. And it's like kind of like, are you just doing the same thing over and over again? First of all, it only seems weird that I've addressed the same kind of character over and over again because you don't see 
any other ones like that. Mm. Yeah, Woody Allen has spent 30 mm. years doing kind of nebbish mm. Jews, and we're just like, that's absolutely fine. Mm. Carry on with doing that. Well, one thing I think is whether or not it's a gender thing, and it probably is, mm. I don't have a problem, and actually literature shouldn't have a problem, with someone having a particular palette. Jane Austen yes. only wrote about a very specific... Lovely drawing rooms. Well, yeah, yes. but totally brilliant, in yes. my opinion, like the most important novels ever written, actually, in well, my opinion. Well, as Blake said, you should be able to see the world in just one grain of sand. Well, exactly. So, so, just, yeah. so, so I don't see any problem with it, but I do think there is possibly a class thing going on, as I say, when you compare it to that kind of writing, is that, like, oh, yeah, that's more important because it's about an upper-class, very tortured environment, yes. as opposed to your environment, which is, has its own type of torture, to be honest. Yes. I perceive quite a lot of pain in these books as well as a lot of Oh, joy. I haven't covered it up as well as I should have. <laughs> well, one of the things that I didn't know about and I really liked mm-hmm. about both books is the gloves off sex writing. Yes. Obviously, you've seen from a very female perspective, which I don't think I've seen that much before, but then I haven't read that much Julie Cooper, to be fair. Uh, she but, doesn't go so much into the sort of feminist analysis yeah, but, of a wank. Well, yes. But also, I d- does she go so much into the microscopia, I'm going to say, not a yes, word. Yeah, of... she, I like that word, we should use it. She describes things very physically, but she doesn't go into what a woman would be thinking at that time and that was the thing that I was really interested in writing about in the sex kind of like what are you actually thinking because I think so much of sex is written from the male gaze that as a woman having sex you're thinking about what the man is thinking about fucking you yeah well okay let's come back to that because we're going to have the first reading now one of the things is of course Dolly uh, goes back to the flat of a certain comedian called Jerry Sharp We'll come to, again, how interesting that is for me as a comedian in the 90s, the fact that Dolly seems to like comedians from the 90s. But let's hear (laughs) what happens in this reading. In later years, when I'm having a long lunch with some girlfriends and we take it in turns to talk about the worst men in the world, they come up with a list of things that, if you see them in a man's flat, tip you off that you are in the presence of a bad man. As they point out, whilst drinking wine and howling, Jerry's flat had the full set. A framed John Coltrane poster, a framed Betty Blue poster, a bookshelf filled with Hunter S. Thompson, Nietzsche, Jack Kerouac, Henry Miller and books about the Third Reich. Several hats, a velvet frock coat, an angry-looking cat and a litter tray full of cat shit, some ironic Virgin Marys, a baran, the complete works of both The Fall and Frank Zappa, a pile of porn, a bottle of absinthe and a coffee table with notable scratch lines from chopping out coke. Any woman, when she sees those things, runs, they conclude, laughing and crying ruefully at the same time. For this is the house of a man who hates women. And they are correct. However, I'm still only 19 and have yet to learn this, so I just think, cool, an edgy intellectual. This is the arena of my broken heart, Jerry says, pouring me a drink and sitting us both down on the sofa. This apartment seems to have been built on some kind of hell mouth that attracts every fucked up girl in Britain. Every time I think I've found some brilliant, filthy, funny sorceress to enchant me, bang, this is where she reveals herself to be some broken lunatic with daddy issues. That was an audio clip from How To Be Famous, written by my guest, Kathleen Moran, Read there by Louise Brearley. Lou Brearley, yes. Yeah, I don't know her, but it's really. She's I like she's it. Molly from Sherlock. You may oh, recognise right. oh, her yes. from Sherlock. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's brilliant. She did my last audiobook as well, and she always says yes to them, and then she always rings me the week after and goes, "I've just read the book. It's really filthy, and I've got to do nineteen accents <laughs> and lots of porn." Yeah, and she has to drink enough. quite heavily while she does the audiobook. So I, thank I, you, Lou, and I'm sorry. I really like that reading. I, I hadn't heard it before, but I like the general. She's got a deadpan voice, which is really great. However, yes. there's one particular issue which we must immediately address, mm. which is mm-hmm. Jerry. Sharp is a comedian in the 
90s, rather brilliantly, after Dolly has sex with, or, or leaves Jerry after the moment where the sex turns really weird. Mm. He says, why are you going? And she says, I prefer Newman and Baddiel. <laughs> and, and I always wondered, well, I, always wondered, I, I read that on the way back from my dance house on the Metropolitan Line, thinking, oh, blimey. But I did think, is this been put in as a marker to people to say, it's, to neither, sure it's, not you. it's neither Rob Newman nor David Baddiel. Yes, yes, I thought I would save you <laughs> that kind of trouble on the Because actually there so, yes. aren't that many... British comedians in the 1990s who could be considered to be rock and roll comedians. Let's pretend there were lots. Well, let's move on. As you say, the book is about sexual shame. Mm. In a way, it's predicting something that seems to be more common later on, in a way. Yes. Which is revenge porn and women being filmed, having sex when they didn't know about it and then being being put out to the public. Totally. Yeah. Now, that's normally done through the internet. Now, in this book it's not because it's sort of pre-broadband and whatever but there's still a strong sense that the character feels that everyone has seen this and everyone knows about it. Well this was the start kind of at this point in the 90s so sort of like three years before it was quite a good time for feminism. We'd had Riot Girls we were talking about these things, there were women only gigs Courtney Love would go into the mosh pit and punch someone who was feeling up girls in in mosh pits, the biggest artist in the world was Alanis Morissette, you know PJ Harvey had come along, it was an amazing time for feminism and then as Britpop started to take off and the cocaine started to come in and things started to get a bit more oi oi geezer Mm. and everyone kind of reverted to a very weird sort of loaded induced childhood Mm. the creeping onset of ironic sexism started to happen Mm. so men would start saying things to you like "All right, Tits McGee you're on your period and Mm. then if you got angry about that they'd go can't you take a joke Mm. thus screwing you over twice Mm. so you weren't allowed to be there there's nowhere for your fury to go Mm. and this sort of like the fact that it was supposed to be a way of loving a woman was to sexually objectify her at that point. That was seen as a compliment and you were supposed to take it as such. Mm. But that's very difficult to deal with when you're a teenage girl. Mm. Like kind of like you sort of see that they're trying to say that as a compliment, but they've got no context of realising how oppressive that is and how exhausting mm. it is to constantly have to deal with that way of talking to women and that kind of constant objectification. Okay, that you're constantly on your toes. I mean, in a way, isn't it just about her and maybe your fragility, yeah. which is interesting and vulnerable, that that's one thing that she might want to be, but... But when it is not quite in her control, as it is with Tony, in Tony Rich's house yes. or in Jerry Sharp's flat, mm-hmm. that suddenly, no, now it feels shameful to be out there having very public or very crazy sex. I mean, one of the reasons why I want to write so explicitly about sex and all these different sexual situations with different kinds of men, with different motives for doing this, trying to do different things to and with women, is that... This information isn't out there. All the sexual information I got as a teenager was from reading books. Mm. And, you know, I'd get to the end of a Julie Cooper and be like, okay, well, that was pretty explicit, but, like, I need to know what to do in this situation. If suddenly we're halfway through having sex, this guy starts wanting to do things that I don't want to do, do I go along with it? Or should we have maybe had a conversation about it first? Mm. Or should it be led by me, Mm. given that the female sexual apparatus is far more complicated Mm. than a man's? So it kind of would make sense if the way that sex was structured is if men were going, well, what do you like? Because we know what you guys like. Mm. You know, it's Mm. really not that difficult. You can have Although sex what Jerry likes, I don't know, it's too much of a spoiler, it probably is, to yeah, say right. what he likes initially is to have the character give him a blowjob while his TV show, the theme tune, is playing. I know. What that is really is, I suppose, in terms of what sex might be as a sort of act between two people, it's mm-hmm. sort of the opposite of that, isn't it? It really is making it just between Jerry and himself. Yes. And that is what is, I suppose, in yeah, a way, aw- awful for, for Dolly stroke Joe, is that she's basically just the wanking machine. Literally, that's the thing. So very rarely are women present in sex. And this is the other problem that I have with literary sex, even though, you know, so, you know, you know sort of like the great white male writers where they write about sex... The, the women aren't present in there. The men are having sex. The women walk in the room, they're assessing them. They have their own insecurities about sex. They're trying to prove something. They feel worried about these things. You, all you hear is like what men are worried about from sex. That's great that men have expressed themselves, but as a girl reading that, if that's the only sexual information you're getting... Mm. 
it's absolutely terrifying. I think that's probably right, although we could have a very long debate about John Updike there, who I noticed in your piece about your very good piece about sex in The Guardian was included in a big list with Henry Miller and Philip Roth. And, yes. and I would argue that I could find you passages of John Updike that are not like that, although some that are. Let's do that uh, in the public. But, yeah, let's do that. Your first object. <laughs> yes, uh, sorry, I, yes. Sorry, I just wanted, needed to bring that in because <laughs> you brought along a series of objects to talk about influence your writing or your life or whatever and I think you brought along too many. I brought along too many, yeah. You, uh, br- you describe yourself as a sort of overpacker. I habitually overprovide, but the first yeah. thing I'm doing the order. So the first one is this and I should describe it using my mouth words. Okay. Um it is a Wolverhampton Public Libraries reservation card. Yeah. So it's in three parts and you would write on it either the author or the composer of the book or the album that you wanted, the title, and then you would you would hand it over to the librarian and they would get any album or any book that you wanted for free. I remember that happening myself in libraries. I know it seems amazing now when all that stuff is free. Yes. You know, people think like, yeah, obviously music's free and more or less books are free because you can probably find some but PDF the, of them online but somewhere. This but this was a better system. There's so many reasons why the library system works better than any other. First of all, you've got a building that you can escape to. Mm. Like kind of like you need a third place. Like yeah. you can't if you need money to go to a shopping mall, your home might not be safe or pleasant. Mm. To have a third place that you can go to in a rainy country where you need to be indoors, where you're safe that's full of books and with the random element of being able to walk around and something catch your eye. You know, you're never going to have that random element when you're Googling because algorithms mm. are just throwing up the most popular things. Yeah. They're not going to find the random weird things that might just change your life. So yeah. you're, you're in a, a palace of random happiness and events. The other great thing about the library system <laughs> is that the library service would pay for these books and these records. Right, of course. So that supported the music do. industry and the authors. Yeah, but you can't... The, the system is much smaller now. You yeah, don't do yeah. it. And also because people can get stuff online for free. They don't yeah, need to. Yeah. But this system worked. If you look at the music industry now, I get increasingly, I'm 43, I'm starting to go, the era that I lived through was a great era. There's no money in music anymore. So, like, kind of when, when we start looking around at the moment and going, you know, there are no sort of like, there are no anthemic songs anymore. There are no spokesmen. There are no people dressed up in ridiculous clothes, kind of like making you feel happy. There's nothing to bring us together as a culture. Everything is very fractured. And the now. library is a way of bringing us together as a culture. Library was. Together. Yeah. So, but just very quickly paint a picture for me of going into Wolverhampton Library as a 16 year old or whatever yes. for the first time. So would, what were you looking for? What would you get? Oh, well, I've been going there since a child, obviously. Oh, right. When it was your 13th birthday, that was a big day. So you got your green ticket, which meant you could get adult and children's books. So that meant that literally on my 13th birthday, it's like, right, all the books with the sex in, please, yeah, yeah. straight over to the sexy shelves. <laughs> Yeah. So I would walk across the wasteland, the green, where I'd be chased by yobs because they thought I was a lesbian. Um, and then I would tie up my Alsatian, who had, at no point had guarded me during this assault, um, mm. to a tree outside where she would bark and howl and whine because she was very badly trained. And I would walk into the library wearing my dressing gown because I didn't have a coat and I wore a dressing gown instead. And I would be looking for, at that point, autobiographies. Right. I wanted to know how other people had lived. Basically, I was sitting in, in my house going, I am fucked. I'm not going to school. I have no qualifications. I have no friends. So I have no way out of here. I need to read as many other people's experiences yeah, but you're in, Okay, so you're in Wolverhampton Library, your dog is outside yes. howling, you're in your dressing gown, yeah. there are blokes outside libel about to shout at you. Yes. Whose autobiography do you find home and hope in? The first one that really changed things for me was reading Harper Marx's autobiography, wow. the Marx Brothers. Wow. So they were a big family and they're a yes. funny family. Yes. So immediately I'm relating to that. Is there, is there any words in it? <laughs> <laughs> it's called Harpo Speaks. So right, he's okay. playing on that. Yeah. It would have been funny, though, if you yeah, had the yeah, job. Yeah, 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 that would have been good. Um, and he's just explaining how you go from being poor and having nothing to getting a job in the industry. And also, I, which I didn't know, well, I didn't know anything about it at all. So he's friends with Alexander Walcott, the theatre critic, and Dorothy Parker. And, and he is, Harpo is the silent member of the Algonquin Round Table. So I'm reading about the Algonquin Round Table in New York and just going... <gasps> 
this is the life I want. I want to go to a city and mm. sit around a table with clever people and talk about stuff mm. and drink cocktails. Mm. Like, now I've got a plan. Mm. No plan before then. Now this is my plan. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find the Algonquin Round Table. Right. Sort of, you know, it was like, OK, London, and there's musicians and there's comedians. That's as near as I'm going to get to the Algonquin Round Table. Yeah. That's where I'm going. You're here now. Yes, this is, this a, is this it. Is, well, it's a sort of hexagonal, hexagonal table, table, yes. But here we are, shooting the breeze. With, <laughs> finally, with, <laughs> finally it has yeah. happened to uh, me. No cocktails, it's just water, but otherwise it's almost the same. So all this did inspire you, and you began writing professionally for Melody Maker and there is a bit in uh, How To Be Famous where John Kite in my opinion the slightly over-lovable I'm slightly jealous of John Kite basically (laughs) Welsh singer-songwriter man he starts talking about the creative process so let's hear that These songs, all the truly great ones, I believe come from the same place. It is my belief, although I have no proof that there is some kind of communal garden of Eden in the collective subconsciousness a place where the water is sweet and the grass is covered in dew and the soil is as rich and fertile as plum pudding. I know you have stolen that description of a magical place from the wood between the worlds in The Magician's Nephew, I interrupt. I just want you to know I have noticed it. Oh, it's where all the magical places are, darling, John says. The garden, wet with rain, from Van's sweet thing. The mountains from river deep, mountain high. The ocean from the beach boys till I die. This is where all the great songs, the ones glowing and humming with the stuff, live. Already written, perfectly formed, roaming around. And what the writer must do is somehow gain entrance to this place and bring back the song like a burglar for mankind. Not just songs, poems and books, They must come from there too, I interject, eagerly. John nods. Or a poem, or a book. And all you have to do when you're bringing these already perfect things back to earth is just make sure you don't knock the mist off it. You can't touch them too much or handle them too much. You just have to courier them, he said. And while you're working on it and recording it, you feed it with something that's in your guts. I mean, actually, that's quite a good example. Both books are incredibly poetic, I think. I mean, I do think at heart you are a poet. I really felt this reading these books is that the prose poetry is is very, very high, I think. But there's something else there, which is that particular speech that John Kite makes is slightly kind of Jungian. It sort of implies a sort of collective unconsciousness of great creativity that you kind of muse into and that it's your job to sort of, as you say, courier in. Now, that, I think, is slightly contradictory in terms of what you suggest elsewhere and maybe suggest in your general being, which is that you've got to fight your way out. Yeah. Your Twitter thing used to be writing the fuck out of shit since yes. 2000 or whatever. No, since 1991. Since 1991, yeah. of course, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so that suggests, if I might be so bold, almost a Thatcherite thing to me, a sort of like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps <gasps> and if you if you are placed in a sort of, you know, not brilliant environment, if you've got a talent, you fucking use it and you get out of it. Now, mm. Thatcherite might sound like an insult. It's not meant to be, actually. I genuinely think that there is a certain Spit amount... Spit on the No, name, I'm me. sorry, I'm going to use it. But what I mean is, yeah. in a sort of a less poetic idea mm-hmm. than John Kite is coming up with yes. there, which is very beautiful and beautifully written, but isn't there something more nuts and bolts and, you know, as I say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps about writing the fuck out of shit? There are 
15 points that I'd like to take off the back of what you right, said. Right. I'll cut it down to three. The first one is I've had lots of people say, you lefty, you hate, you know, I wrote a huge piece about why everyone working class and you rejoiced when Margaret Thatcher died. And because I wrote it in the Times, I got lots of people going, but you are the paragon of Thatcher ideals. You've come from, you know, a working class council estate, raised on benefits, and now you're a columnist in the Times, you earn all this money, you've written these books. That's exactly the Thatcher ethos in a nutshell. Like, kind of, you prove the, you know, the, the pudding of Thatcher. Uh, you prove to, the pudding of yes. Thatcher. Mm, yeah. Pudding yeah. of Thatcher. That's a, not a pudding, I <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, no, because where are the other means? Mm. You know, if, if that worked, if bootstraps yeah. worked, there should be dozens of me. Like, you know, there's, there's clearly not. No. I, mean, I, th- I think I'm still either the second or third youngest uh, columnist on Fleet Street, which right. is absurd. I've been working are for... You? Yeah, I believe so. I can't wow. think... No new generations have come through because we don't have the music. That stepladder that used to, for a brief sort of like three-decade period, allowed the working classes to start with no qualifications at all on local papers or on the music press. Then you progress through to the monthlies, like the face or ID, mm. and then you go on to the, onto the broad sheets yeah. that's gone now we've, yeah, we've the Julie Birchall template to some yeah extent. totally yeah. you know and the, what Keith Waterhouse did Tony Parsons you mm. know Daddy Baker yeah that's all gone now there's no way in you have to you can blog for free no that's true but if you are working class and you're having to blog for free you're not earning money then you're gonna have to work a job in the daytime so by the time you come around to write you're exhausted you're mm. immediately going to fall behind your middle class peers that are supported by their families so yeah. that's point one that's Thatcher's fault though. that's the internet's fault yes as it happens. Well, the, not that I mean, I'm trying to defend Margaret Thatcher. I don't know why yeah, I'm doing this that. Going? No, yeah. I don't know why. But in a way, I, you're right politically, of course. Yes, the structures are still, you know, kind of so heavily weighted against people yes. from your background. I completely agree with that. But uh, I sort of meant it more in terms no, of but, like yeah, no. against the sort of slightly rom- romantic thing, a slightly more, you know, because writing is at some level, it's hard graft. Yes. It's it is about sort of like sitting down and doing it. I don't know that it's about fetching something from the magical universe and bringing it back. Well, there's there's two things there. I mean, just just Working hard and having some talent, like kind of, that's going to be ninety percent of your work. That's ninety percent of everybody's work. You're just grafting. Like, mm. bitch, got to make rent. You know, mm. I love being called a hack. I will sit down and I will chop out those words as many as I need to every mm. day without cease. But there is a moment when the really good stuff happens. It does feel like it's from somewhere outside you, or, or from a subconscious that's buried so deep that you've mm. had to get into another state to get it. Mm. There are there are times when I've written pages where I don't know where it came from. Mm. You're just kind of like, and that feels like. Anyone else could have written that as well. There was some kind of massive server and I was the first... Because I'd been sitting there for so long and working for so hard, I was the one that managed to get into that room and get that thing. And so many of the people that I've interviewed have said this when I was interviewing Keith Richards and I was saying, you know, do you regret the years that you were doing so many drugs and you were so out of it? And he was like, no, because the the main thing that happened when I was on drugs is I would stay up later than everybody else. So I'd be sitting at a piano at five o'clock in the morning when everyone else had gone to bed. And so I would get the songs that would come along at five o'clock in the morning. Mm. Like they were were there. Mm. And so so there's not an... a contradiction in, in my ethos that I do believe there's a kind of Jungian subcon- collective consciousness where these beautiful things are and I also believe in hard work because if you if you are the person that sits in that chair long enough writing long enough if you are a, you know a, a, a reliable vessel for things to come mm. through then you will win hopefully the inspiring moments of course one thing you do need whatever, especially if you are from a background that isn't necessarily tuned into that kind of stuff, is encouragement. And you got this yes. from an interesting source, somewhere from your own town. Yes. So I'd read the Harper Marx autobiography and I knew that I wanted to go to a city and find the clever and the funny. It was mainly funny people at that point. Mm. The music wasn't really happening for me. It was like funny people. I wanted to meet comedians, wanted to meet writers. So I just started trying to get in contact with funny people. So I started writing to all the comedy shows that I loved, sending uh, jokes in. And I also replied for the to be the managing director of comedy 
Comic Relief. There was an advert for the managing director really? of Comic Relief. Really? You applied Relief. for the managing director? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I saw it. There was an advert in the local paper and they were asking for it. So I wrote How a letter. How old were you then? 13. <laughs> so I wrote a letter just going, I like funny stuff and I'm pretty organised. I've got like at this point seven younger brothers and sisters. I do everything for and them. And you like really doing organized. good? Yeah. I'm a really noble person. <laughs> yeah. Sadness makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bad times are bad. Well, you were absolutely the right qualifications Absolutely, there. Totally They're all there. I know, right? <laughs> so I sent this off, and then about five days later, I got a letter back, and it was a letter from Lenny Henry wow. saying, Look, you take this job, it's just dry old stuff. You, you are far too special to do something as boring as this. I believe that you are going to fly like a comet through British society. Wow. And it was signed by Lenny Henry. And the reason that I haven't got this letter here today is because I immediately lost it within a week because wow. I was going around and showing everybody it. But I can still remember every single word of it. It was really brilliant that he did that. But I think it must have been something to do with you being from Wolverhampton. Yes, as well. exactly. He was from Dudley. I'm really interested in the point where new neural pathways are made and new synapses are burnt and the plasticity of the brain and how you can rewire your brain. Because mm. I noticed several things that happened by accident or coincidence literally changed the, the, the makeup of my brain. Because it was like, he's written back to you. He's seen you. Mm. Like, kind of like a letter can go from mm. Wolverhampton to London. It just felt like a hand had been extended yeah. out. It was like, I can do this now. Mm. So then, encouraged by Lenny Henry sending me this letter, I then started bothering production companies constantly. So then I started submitting uh, material to Spitting Image and I got a letter back from Clive Anderson mm. in which he very politely negs me off but I was no. still so thrilled by this point I was like I'm engaging in bants with Clive Anderson what does he now. say so dear Catelyn he spelled it incorrectly okay. uh, this is the 22nd of June 1990 thank you very much for your letter with its bizarre suggestion that any mention of Jeremy Beadle is bound to get a cheap laugh we're always on the lookout for laughs cheap or expensive but so far we haven't tried out your suggestion perhaps we will if times get rough in the future thank you very much for writing to me anyway yours sincerely Clive Anderson I'm slightly confused was he in charge was his spitting image did you say oh actually this must have been for Clive Anderson must have been Clive back. Anderson yes. talks back so you were presumably writing his monologue was the idea yes yes yeah. and yeah no but I was writing to Spitting Image as well I got letters from them I was rejected by nearly every major production company mm. with very very poor jokes that I sent in the book of course is called How To Be Famous and is about to some extent about fame in a sense, you're a reporter, you're still a journalist, yes. or a writer, so you're sort of writing missives back from the world of fame. You're not writing so much from the position of being famous in this book, well, even was, though you are famous. Well, well, I have done everything I can to be as unfamous as possible. You know, I've been you know, asked to do, like, Celebrity Big Brother or, like, kind of, like, go to Naomi Campbell's dinner parties and, and you know, all these things, you know, go time 100 people of the year things, all this stuff. I just say no to all of it. I think if you're a writer, you need to not change the climate of the room when you walk in it. You don't mm. want to be the focus of attention. You mm. want to be watching other people. I just like describing things. That's mm. my biggest joy. If I get to follow Lady Gaga around for a day, I don't actually want to ask her a single question. I just want to describe what she does in that day. I like to watch. I mean, that's basically, I mean, 90% of fame is the entrance that you make. Yes. Like, kind of, it's the moment, it's the moment where you, and that tells you a lot about the psychology of fame, it's the moment where you impact. Yes. Like, what was the moment where sort people, of Because like, people, why should people track you and all your oh, complexity because yeah, yeah. you know they can do that with their nearest and dearest yes. why should they do it with someone they don't even actually know, oh, God, you no, know we're not designed to know 7,000 people that we are presented with all the time and, and the people who would track you all the way through that generally would be quite scary yes like, that, that's like... absolutely true here is Dolly Joe. I'm going to call her Dolly Joe. that's okay yeah. doing an essay essentially about Mrs Back from the World of Fame 1. Famous people don't have coats no coats Here's how the hot young star from EastEnders explained it to me. You get into a car to go to the premiere so you don't need a coat. Then you do the red carpet where a coat would obscure your outfit. Then you go into the venue where you don't need a coat. At the end of the evening, another car drives you home. We don't wear coats. We wear cars. Famous people don't have coats. Don't buy them a duffel for Christmas. It won't get much use. Two. 
Famous people are very short, even the big action heroes. Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually four foot ten. In person, he looks like a child made out of cricket balls. Walking into an A-list party, you will feel like some mad, spade-handed giant, apt to knock over tiny, famous umpalumpers. Most big premieres could be held in a Wendy house or shoebox. How many famous people can you fit in a mini? Over a million. That's not even a joke. It's a fact. Three. Famous people know all the other famous people. They might not have met them, but they all know each other. On entering a party or gathering and spotting another famous they have no previous encounters with, they do the nod, which means I, a famous, acknowledge you, another, a famous. We currently live in a shared reality, different to that of everyone else in the room. Don't, as a non-famous, try to the nod, a famous. They will unnod you jerking their head upwards and away, like a horse rejecting a snaffle. Take your the nod back. Only a nodder can become a noddy. As I say, it's still written slightly from the point of view, here I am, the non-famous, speaking to other non-famous, but I've had some experience of the famous, yes. and so here is how to navigate it. It's more fun that way, I think. Let's talk about teenage girls, because yes. as you say, there's a lot about teenage girls. Some people might have issues with it, which is, she writes an essay at one point about why it's okay for teenage girls to sleep with rock stars. Yeah, to essentially indulge in groupie behaviour. Yeah, yes. and I don't get a sense that there that there's... Um, ambiguity about that in the book that you that you still sort of endorse that or well, am I right about that? Well or... I would say I mean the, 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 there is a payoff to it later on but basically the essay that she writes which I would say is 90% of what I believe is that why would it be wrong for you to want to have sex with someone who's talented and famous and charismatic and because presumably very Jerry good in Sharp. bed? Well, and that is the payoff in the book. So Jerry Sharp finds another victim and uh, Dolly and her friend go over and try and form an intervention and go, this is a bad man, you must not have sex with him. Uh, we are a feminist avenging league, do not go near this man. And then she goes, hang on, weren't you the person who wrote that essay in the face right, last month just saying that you should be having sex with famous people? To which she goes, it's a very complicated situation and I right. realise I'm going to have to write a follow-up piece. Yeah, um, yeah, But generally, as a principle, like kind of like, you're going to have sex with someone. Why not have it be a slightly older, much more practised man with whom there'll be a great anecdote attached to it? Why is it more noble and correct for you to have sex with a spotty Herbert at school hmm. who's probably got warts on his fingers and will almost certainly gossip about you in the playground afterwards? Yes. Like, I don't see why that's a more noble option. I suppose being devil's advocate here, because, you know, I'm perfectly happy with that idea myself <laughs> uh, for, for lots of reasons, in a kind of post-Me Too, I can't believe I'm saying those words, no, but it. environment... The power balance is complicated in that situation. I guess with the spotty Herbert, the power balance is fairly equal-ish. Or certainly not as lopsided as it is if it's Robert Plant. Criminal behaviour would be a completely different issue. Like, I don't know if it was non-consensual, if it tends to rape or assault, that's a completely different thing. But sort of everything before that, the worst that could happen in any sexual situation is that the person that you've had sex with, the man that you have had sex with, goes around and talks about you afterwards, tries to shame you. Mm. At any point before it becomes criminal activity, the worst thing that can happen to you is that it will be a shit shag that he may you know upset you or offend you or you know just say something be insensitive like kind of be inhumane and then go and talk about you afterwards mm. and whether you're having it with a spotty herbert at your school or robert plant that's exactly the same the risk factor is exactly the same yeah but you've got a better anecdote and he's probably better in bed if he's robert plant but i assume he's better in bed if he's robert plant <laughs> yes. uh, certainly in the 1970s i suppose the, some might say 
that, that you might be in an ambiguous situation with Robert Plant. It's very unfair to Robert Plant, yeah. this, who I've known. <laughs> We've really you, dragged him you, into you, this. You might be in an ambiguous will. situation yeah. with a very big rock star mm. where you, you sort of want to be near him, but you're not really sure if you want to have sex with him, and then you end up having sex with him, and then you feel like you shouldn't have done that, which would not happen with the spotty Herbert. But but then in those situations, well, first of all, if if you if you go along with it just because you want to have the anecdote, then that was your decision. But right. if you decide halfway through that you don't want to have sex with this guy, you're actually more likely for him to just say, yeah, that's fine, and let you out the door, yeah. because he's got 15 <laughs> yeah, women backed yes. up down the hall. Way. It's yes, literally one in one out. Point. It's like a ticketing system, yeah. like the cheese counter. Whereas the spotty, Herber, spotty Herbert's like, this is the only chance I'm ever going to have oh, to yeah. see Vag. I'm <laughs> all in for this one. This yes. is not going to end. No, that's a very, very good point. You know what? Let's hear your actual advice to teenage girls about the subject of having sex with rock stars. So, you're a teenage girl and you're hot to trot. The piece begins. You're supposed to be revising your geography homework and all those sedimentary layers. But your knickers are screaming... Take me out and party! And you just can't stop looking at the picture of Jeff Buckley's arms that you've got blue tacked to the wall. You want to have sex with someone, and you're bored of that someone being you. You want to bring a second person into this relationship. At this point, you only really have two options. The first is to bite the bullet and have sex with some guy you know at school, which is what you were supposed to do. That's the normal, good thing to do. But why? Why is it the good option for me to have sex with some inexperienced, nervy, trigger-happy, warty-fingered Herbert I've known since I was 11 and who is statistically very likely to turn up at school the next day and act like bragging Danny Zuko in the opening act of Grease? She got friendly, down in the sand, and make me the subject of gossip for the next six months. This is why I think option two, having sex with rock stars, is a far more useful option. Say what you want about Robert Plant and his teenage groupies, but A, I've never seen a picture of him with warts, B, he was almost certainly better in the sack than anyone currently living in the Whitmore Reens area of Wolverhampton, and C, he was far too busy singing Immigrant Song to subsequently write Dolly is a Slag on the toilets of Highfield School and go around the canteen saying, smell my fingers, guess who it is, whilst people are trying to eat sponge and weird pink custard. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Have sex with Robert Plant in 1973, girls. Case solved. Yeah, case absolutely on, solved. Yeah. Groupies as an idea. Would you say that's part of what's going on here? It's a sort of manual for teenage girls not to be ashamed of sex. You need to recognise your to be ashamed, And not to be ashamed of their bodies because where does the shame come from? Does it just come from the patriarchy? It's you, a combination of not seeing yourself represented anywhere at all. Like, So if you're growing up with a, you know, a, a non-perfect body, which pretty much every woman will be, you don't see yourself anywhere. In many ways, it takes you a very long time to be able to say to yourself the truth of, I am not a beautiful person. Like, sometimes that can take you, like, sort of 10 or 15 years to finally be able to say, okay, I'm not one of the beautiful people. And that's a really heartbreaking moment because it's incredibly important to be beautiful if you're a girl. There's nowhere else to go in your mind once you say to yourself, I'm not a beautiful But in terms of your message to mm. teenage girls, what would you say you're giving them to get beyond that? I often get asked, as a feminist, why would you wear makeup? And it's like, it's not to look sexy or glamorous or beautiful. I'm trying to do something else. I'm trying to look like either David Bowie or a puffin. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of like, it's good to have alternatives to yeah. being Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Like, be a bird, be an animal, be mm. a man. You know, be something other. Like, build yourself. Mm. Like, kind of find the thing that makes you happy. You're strapping all these bits of armour on the things that you identify as yourself. So, like, for instance, 
headphones, like kind of a, one of the objects that we have. So over the last 20 years, I've done a series of incredibly terrifying things, like kind of, you know, going out and, you know, doing a stand-up gig in front of 2,000 people, and, you know, flying across the world, doing these sort of like tours where you're kind of, you know, you're not sleeping for three days straight, doing four-hour signings where you're meeting people and they're crying, talking to parliamentary committees, like all these things that are absolutely terrifying. And everything that I'd read about being a woman was the thing that would give me confidence would be having an amazing blow-dry, really great nails, a really brilliant fucking, maybe a Roland Moray dress, a really sharp coat, a really fuck-off handbag and an amazing pair of shoes. And then I would be constructed and I would be together. And there was a big working-class ethos of you go in, you go in correct, you go in mm. smart and that will give you power. Mm. I have never found that to be useful at all. Mm. That I do not feel comfortable, I do not feel powerful like that. What makes me feel powerful is putting my headphones on and listening to the most scratchy, feedbacky, raucous, horrible, sweaty, brilliant rock and roll that I can. Mm. So if I'm listening to Jesus and Mary Chains upside down, mm. I'm ready to walk into a room and mm. do something. That's why culture is so important it, you you are going to have to find alternatives to being beautiful mm. you're going to have to find alternatives possibly to being charming or being clever and, and, you know if these things aren't available to you you need to find other powers mm. you need to strap on other things which is why you need to read very widely why you need to talk to as many people as possible cast your net wide and bring in the things that will give you strength that you will strap onto mm. yourself because i don't think there's any such thing really as a person i think we are a collection or a compendium that the, the essential nature that you are is so small and so malleable the most important thing is the things that you then attach to yourself and how you build yourself over your life. I think it's very true, particularly for women, and particularly now, particularly for young women, which mm. is that ideal uh, being so visually based and that, that identity being so about that. Yes. You know, to, to say, OK, here is how to find an alternative narrative mm. for your own self-esteem, for how to deal with the world. Totally. I mean, that is unbelievably important. Have you got another object? Because you've yes, got so many. I, I think have. we should probably... I'm going to throw this one down now. It's my swimming costume. It's it's a sturdy item. It's it's in no way fruity. I'm not going to be doing some kind is of. It, uh, is it your swimming costume now? My when actual you, when you were in nope. Wolverhampton. No, no, no. It's it's the swimming costume that has changed my life. The biggest long term relationship that you will be engaged in as a woman, I believe, is that with your body. Mm. If you'd asked me 20 years ago as a teenage girl where my body was, I would have said maybe about five miles away, and I might meet it in about 10 years. Mm. I just felt like a brain in a jar, and mm. my legs were sub like by way of a gurney that would just kind it's of sort of Dalek thing. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. I would happily have been the Mekon. The swimming costume so, yes. suggests... But it's since I've started swimming in very cold lakes and ponds outdoors that I have finally actually finally come into my body at the age right. of 43. Where do you do this? And I would... At Hampstead, Heath, Ladies Ponds, they're right. amazing. Or anywhere. I always have my swimming costume in my bag so that if I see some cold water, I can jump into it. And sort of in the next book that I'm writing, I'm going to make this a huge thing. I think yoga's really... It's really difficult to talk about swimming in yoga without sounding like a middle-class North London arsehole. But I just think if girls go out and you swim in cold water... It puts you into your body. It will save you 20 years Dolly of does this at one point in the book. With yes. Suzanne, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I wish I could run courses for young women to put you in your body earlier. The sooner you realise that you're in your body and that that is where you live, that is your home. It's very interesting because you're so much a person, in my mind, of words essentially of the cerebral yes you know and yet you're talking here about how the final well not final but the, the sort of the mature realization is that what you have to come to terms with is the body yes and that, that, that in a way the brain by itself won't do that you have to have something more visceral happen cold water i don't think the brain can understand the body and mm. I, I for years had tried to intellectualize the fact that i was a living person in a body it's huge you know these are the big existential things you wrestle with and in the end you just have to go my body is going to have to work this out i'm going to mm. have to put my body in these situations so that it realizes it's alive and i am in it yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But no, you don't see... I mean, these are the things... This is the next book that I'm writing, but, like, these are the things that I what love to write What is the next book you write? Actually, we things. need to end. Tell me what the next book you're writing is. Uh, so the next book after this, I'm writing the sequel to How to Be a Woman, which is called More Than a Woman. So I'm going back to non-fiction and right. sort of essays and stuff and sort of continuing my biography. And then there will be the sequel to this, uh, How to Change the World. And then uh, there's a novel which is basically Margaret Atwood doing weird science, right. uh, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, so those are, those are the next three. And then we've got the film of How to Build a Girl. Yeah, uh, which there's shooting, that now. Yeah, which we're shooting that shooting now. now. Yeah, which is amazing. So, yes, I know exciting times, man. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was a brilliant interview. You know, people always say this. They always say, oh, we could talk for hours. We actually could. Well, we actually are going to, aren't we? Now? Yeah, I think we're going to have to talk for about five days. So, thank you very much, Catelyn Moran. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio The Dead X by Jane Corrie. David left Vicky in her time of need, but now David is dead and Vicky is one of the suspects. How will she prove her innocence to the police when she's struggling to prove it to herself? Her throat was so rough that it was hard to swallow, and she felt sick. But worst of all was that empty pit of fear inside her. I'm scared I might never see my mum again, she whispered. That was when she saw it. The look. Scarlet was good at working out what looks meant. She'd had practice. There was the look mum gave her before the game, which said, be a good girl. The look purple-haired Auntie Julie had given her in the shop, which said, pretend you know me. And the look that the uncles gave her, which said, get lost. I want time on my own with your mother. This twisted and suspenseful thriller is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.